Welcome to Counter Apologetics. I'm your host, Emerson Green. We're going to cover a lot of ground today on the common consent argument, religious disagreement, divine hiddenness, and the afterlife. Okay, so now we're at widespread theistic belief, or the common consent argument. I've decided to die upon this hill, because I think this is actually a good argument and it's underappreciated. I also like how it's sort of an appeal to common sense, you know, like the last argument can get really technical really quickly um, as soon as you get in the weeds, but this argument is just kind of squarely in the realm of common sense, so I like that about it. So the basic point is just that most of the beliefs that answer to the kind of description we can give to theism, most of those beliefs are true. So what I mean by that is, if human faculties overwhelmingly tend to produce belief in X, and most human beings today and throughout history believed in X, if it's been a constant throughout human existence as best we can tell, both in the past and in the present, the vast majority of humans believe X, then X is probably true. So let's try formulating this into an argument. Premise 1. If a belief is held by most people, past and present, then that belief is probably true. Premise 2. Theistic belief has been held by most people, past and present. Therefore, theism is probably true. So that conclusion seems a bit strong. Maybe it should have like an other things held equal clause or something like that. But as you know, I prefer to put things in the kind of form like, hey, here's an observation. This observation is more likely on this hypothesis as compared to that hypothesis. It assigns a higher probability to this observation than the rival hypothesis. Therefore, this observation favors the first over the second. But it's still helpful to put things in that kind of deductive form. So that way it's really clear, you know, like, here's a premise, here's another premise, here's the conclusion that follows. There are basically two things you can do now. Either say the conclusion doesn't follow, so it's an invalid argument or you can attack one of the two premises. So what can be said in support of those two premises? Premise 1, if a belief is held by most people, past and present, then that belief is probably true. Okay, so why think that? Well, most of the beliefs that are held by most people, past and present, are true. And there's a reason for that. We have generally trustworthy cognitive faculties, so if they overwhelmingly produce the same result, we have, at the very least, a good reason to take that belief seriously. And this premise just becomes transparently obvious once we start to reflect on the long list of beliefs that answer to this description. So this is why I brought up the Michael Humer quote from the book Knowledge, Reality, and Value. And you know what? I'm just going to read it again. This is currently in the running for most quoted passage on this podcast because I read it during the Logical Fallacies episode when I was making the point that Ad populum, or the bandwagon fallacy, is not really a fallacy, or at least something that sounds a lot like the bandwagon fallacy or the argument from popularity, is really not fallacious. And I also read it during the debate. Quote, Ad populum is the fallacy of believing something because most people believe it. But what exactly is supposed to be wrong with that? Maybe the idea is that most people believing P is irrelevant to whether P is true. In other words, if most people believe it, that doesn't mean it's more likely to be correct. Problem. This is obviously wrong. If most people believe something, that obviously does make it more likely to be correct 
than if most people don't believe it. If most of our beliefs weren't true, the human species would die out pretty much immediately. Sometimes people elaborate on this fallacy by citing examples of beliefs that were once widely held but were false. For example, that the sun orbits the earth. So let me now just mention a few typical examples of beliefs that are widely held. Dogs exist. It is generally lighter in the daytime than at night. The sky is blue, not red, green, or yellow. There are more than three human beings in existence. Human beings commonly have beliefs and desires. Putting your hand in a fire hurts. Six is more than two. The earth has existed for more than five minutes. When you drop rocks near the surface of the earth, they generally fall. I'm sure you can extend that list for a long time. Now, which would you say there are more of? Widely held beliefs that are true, or ones that are false? End quote. So the first premise might sound a little weird at first, but the objections to it are weak. It's sort of like asking, why think that if someone plays the lottery, they're probably going to lose? Well, because most people who play the lottery lose. Okay, so what can be said in defense of premise two? Theistic belief has been held by most people, past and present. So there's an article about the common consent argument that I've seen referenced whenever the argument comes up by this guy named Titty Smith, awesome name. And he sort of disputes that we're naturally disposed to believe in God, but I would point to the Cognition, Religion, and Theology Project. This was led by Dr. Justin Barrett from the Center for Anthropology and Mind at Oxford University. Quote, a three-year international research project directed by two academics at the University of Oxford finds that humans have natural tendencies to believe in gods and an afterlife. And it, quote, involved 57 researchers who conducted over 40 separate studies in 20 countries, representing a diverse range of cultures. The studies, both analytical and empirical, conclude that humans are predisposed to believe in gods and an afterlife. So, yeah, I mean, according to this uh, major research endeavor, humans have a natural tendency to believe in gods. I think that if you could show that most people didn't believe in God throughout history, and it was sort of a belief that was taught, you know, and indoctrinated and spread uh, through force, you know, that's something that Smith was trying to argue, um, which he purports to show, but I don't think he succeeds. Um, If you could show that, you know, belief in God is something that's more recent in human history, then uh, that would undercut the kind of evidence that I'm talking about. If it was just the case that most people don't even have the relevant concepts So he claims to have shown that, but as I said, I don't think he did. And certainly the Cognition, Religion, and Theology Project seems like pretty powerful evidence in support of the idea that human beings do have a natural tendency to believe in God. Yeah, so their conclusion was that humans have a natural propensity to believe in God and the afterlife, not that we lack the relevant concepts until we're taught or indoctrinated. We're naturally inclined to believe in God. At the very least, the common consent argument should get you to take belief in God seriously and not think that it's on par with Santa Claus or unicorns or something like that. That's the modest aim of the argument. You could also frame this as an inference to the best explanation. Theistic belief is very widespread, and God's existence is a good explanation of why theistic belief is widespread. Competing explanations of the prevalence and persistence of belief in God are not as good as the straightforward theistic explanation. That's another way of doing it. I think that has something going for it. Why do most people believe in God? Well, one simple way of explaining it is that God exists. 
Why do most people believe that the external world exists, and that six is more than two, and that putting your hand in a fire hurts, and that dogs exist, and that there are more than three human beings, and that other minds exist? Because that's all true. That it's true should be part of a good explanation of why most people believe it. Pretty straightforward. So again, if nothing else, this should get you to take theism seriously and not treat it like a delusion or a mental illness. The universal acceptance of the divine across cultures and times should maybe get you to think that the vast majority of humans who have ever existed are onto something, and maybe the atheist is the one who's missing something. So as I said, I think this argument is not bad, even though it's almost never, ever used by theists. But, I mean, once you lay it out, I don't really see what's wrong with those premises. As I said, I only want to frame this as like a probability-raising sort of argument. Like, hey, theism is more probable than it would have been if most people didn't believe it. And I think the way that I've framed this has kind of precluded any kind of self-defeat objection. You know, oh, most people don't use the common consent argument. Most people don't think it's good. Well, first of all, most people don't know about the argument. It's not like belief that the common consent argument is bad is a belief that was held by most people, past and present. It's just been a constant throughout human history. No, it's not like that. Among the dorks like me and the people listening to this who have heard of this argument, most of them are not impressed. But again, the way that I framed the argument, I don't think that fact should be a problem. And, you know, second of all, it's just like, hey, what's the problem with the argument? Both of these premises seem true to me. What's wrong with them? I mean, the fact is that human faculties overwhelmingly tend to produce belief in something godlike. Human faculties are generally truth-tracking. And just as a matter of probability, most of the beliefs that are held by most people are true. Once you start listing them out, it becomes abundantly clear that most of the beliefs that are held by most people are true. It's not irrelevant if most people don't believe something. I mean, think about it this way. What if everyone was an atheist, just naturally? And it was a constant throughout human history. You could find traces of theism here and there in history, but it was just a fringe of weirdos who believed it. Do you think that would, you know, kind of alter your assessment of the likelihood of theism if most people didn't believe it and never had? Of course it would. Like, again, this is perfectly rational. There's nothing irrational about this. So maybe you could say the same thing about this argument as you could about the existence of consciousness. Oh, this is only very weak evidence for theism. Okay, fine. I mean, we can. Let's just start there. Let's just start by admitting that the argument works and that it's only very weak evidence. And then maybe over time you'll become convinced that it's maybe a little stronger than you'd initially supposed. So one common reply to this is a sort of general principle about the consensus of experts. If common sense leads most people to conclusion A, but those with relevant expertise come to conclusion B, that fact would provide a defeater for the support initially offered by widespread acceptance. Yeah, I think that's true, you know, like if our common sense and intuitions lead us to believe one thing about, you know, physics or something, and then physicists come along and say, actually, that's wrong. I think most people are like, oh, okay. They're not like, fuck you. So who are the epistemic authorities here? So you might point out that there's an inverse correlation between education and religiosity. The question here is one of relevant expertise. So I don't really care what climate scientists think about philosophy of mind, or what economists think about photography. 
So just having a nondescript degree I don't think makes you an epistemic authority on God. I don't see why I should place any particular emphasis on your opinion about theism versus atheism because you have some nondescript degree. So I don't really care that there's an inverse correlation between education or religiosity, at least as it relates to this specific argument. So one might point out that there's an inverse correlation between education in philosophy and religiosity. The majority of philosophers don't believe in God. Okay, but again, the question is one of relevant expertise. Why should we place any emphasis on what philosophers of language think about God? Furthermore, there's this interesting article from Quentin Smith called The Metaphilosophy of Naturalism, where he basically says, like, yeah, most academics are atheists, but they're only accidentally right. They're, they're literally just right by accident. He says, quote, the great majority of naturalist philosophers have an unjustified belief that naturalism is true and an unjustified belief that theism is false, end quote. Quentin Smith was a leading atheist philosopher himself, and he did not respect the atheism of his peers, which was, you know, was and still is like the predominant view in academic philosophy. And he was like, yeah, if they're right, they're right by accident. They are not people who you should look to when it comes to atheism versus theism. As it turns out, the majority of philosophers of religion are theists. So the subgroup of philosophers with the most plausible claim to relevant expertise are mostly theists. So you might think that selection pressure could explain why most philosophers of religion are theists. You know, atheists are probably less inclined to study something that they don't think is real in the first place. And I think that that's totally plausible, but it just doesn't really bear on the argument because I was never appealing to the consensus of experts anyway. I'm appealing to widespread acceptance among all human beings, past and present. I wasn't saying, hey, uh, the, <laughs> the experts, exp- God exists, experts say. No, I don't care about it. That was never the argument. If you were trying to identify experts, the ones with the most plausible claim to it are actually mostly theists, so that doesn't really help either. And for what it's worth, if you were to identify experts, quote-unquote, in this area, I think it would just be people who care the most about this issue and who have the relevant tools for assessing it. Like, So I think it would be people with philosophical training, but more importantly, I think it, is, it would have to be people who really care about this issue. You know, they care enough about it to read about it and to talk about it and argue about it you know, who are approaching it in good faith. The problem is it's hard to pull for that. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think that if you really care about what the answer is, your opinion matters more. It should be weighted more heavily than someone who, like, you know, barely cares about the subject, even if they're otherwise really smart and, you know, well-educated and so forth. So yeah, I mean, education matters, education and philosophy matters, but the set of people who have the relevant tools for assessing this and who really care about the answer, that set is much bigger than people who are in academic philosophy. So I do grant more weight to some people's opinion, but I don't really know how to test for those things that I said.
religion. Uh, of course, now the atheists may say, yeah, everybody comes up with a belief in religion or the transcendent, but they're all very different. Uh, you know, they're, they're, so how could you say there is a corresponding object when you've got Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, Christianity? They all view God or the divine very differently. And my reply to that would be, well, imagine you're at a party with 100 people. And 95 of them say they heard a loud noise outside, but they disagree about the noise. Some say it was a voice. Some say it was an explosion. 95 say there was a sound, but they disagree on what the sound was. And five of them say there was no sound at all. Uh, I would say it's in that case, it would be more likely there was a sound. And the 95 have just some have correctly incorrectly understood what it was, but there still was something out there. I'm not inclined to believe the five people who didn't hear it just because the 95 disagree. Okay, so by far the most common response to this, though, is religious disagreement. This goes way beyond the common consent argument. So this is not all just in service of the argument from widespread theistic belief. We're also digging into, I think, a major evidential chip in favor of naturalism. That happens to work as well as an objection to one of the arguments I raised. For one, it's offered as a defeater for widespread theistic belief and for religious experience. Secondly, it's a good argument in its own right. Okay, so widespread theistic belief is a genuine phenomenon, but the agreement is rather superficial. You know, we're including Christians and Muslims and Jews and Hindus and pagans and polytheists. Okay, so the widespread belief in God, you know, it's actually pretty superficial as soon as you scratch the surface. The more specific facts undermine any one particular theistic model. You know, again, this evidence is understated. And by the way, there's a difference between underdetermination and understating the evidence. I just, I've been using both of those. I hope I haven't misspoken at any point. But underdetermination is just when evidence is equally supportive of multiple hypotheses. Understated evidence is when you hone in on some fact about the data that supports your hypothesis and ignore more specific data about the same subject that undermines your hypothesis. So Paul Draper gives the example of someone who's on trial for murder. The prosecution points out that 10 minutes before the uh, stabbing murder took place, the defendant bought a knife. Okay, well, that seems like, you know, decent evidence. It might raise your credence in the idea that they were the killer. But they neglect to mention that they bought a butter knife. He did not buy a knife of the stabbing variety. So, general fact, sounds like it supports your hypothesis. More specific fact, actually undermines it. So that's the fallacy of understated evidence. And presumably that's what the people who bring up religious disagreement are getting at. Yeah, there's widespread belief in God, but when you look at it more specifically, there's all this disagreement. Well, the thing that I pointed out in the debate, which I think is right, um, and is supported by the Cognition, Religion, and Theology Project, is that we have a natural tendency to believe in something godlike. That's my only point. You know, I'm just arguing for something godlike. If you say, this isn't evidence for, you know, uh, the Trinity, this is just evidence that something godlike exists. It's like, I'll take it. <laughs> you know, deal. <laughs> okay, so we've got evidence that something godlike exists. You'll get this sometimes with like contingency arguments or cosmological arguments where someone will say like, oh, well, this doesn't prove that Jesus Christ is, it's like, yeah, it's not supposed to, you know, it's a stage one contingency argument. You know, I don't think you can actually say that's like a flaw of the argument because it's not supposed to do that. 
there are different stages of the case for theism. So I think the stage we're at when we're arguing about widespread theistic belief is just something godlike. That's it. So bringing up religious disagreement, I think, is no more a point against widespread theistic belief or the common consent argument than cosmological or contingency arguments. I mean, could this same point be raised against the Kalam? But it seems like the same kind of move, right? It's like just not understanding the stage of the case that we're in. You know, maybe the Kalam thing is not a perfect analogy, but the point is, the target belief is God, something godlike. If there were widespread platonic agreement, you know, everyone throughout history and in the present agreed that Platonism was true, but everyone was disunited about details concerning the platonic realm, there would still be widespread platonic agreement. I could think of other cases where people do have disagreements about these specific details, which of course might undermine any one hypothesis, but they're all kind of in the same X-like territory. You know, if you went to a concert and you got wildly different reports about what was on stage, but they all agreed it was something band-like that was on stage, would that undermine the idea that there was a concert? So let's say that you're trying to figure out whether this concert really took place. You, you talk to five different people and you get five different answers about which band was on stage. So they all agree that there was something concert-like, but they disagree about which band was playing the show. Okay, well, does that undermine the idea that there was something concert-like? I mean, maybe, but does it undermine the idea that any one of those particular bands is the right answer? Yeah, maybe. I mean, I don't know. Is it, is it reasonable to turn around and say, there was no concert? That's one way of reading it. I mean, it just doesn't seem clear to me that, like, unambiguously, that's the right way to read it. There was no concert. Let's say 95% of philosophers and philosophers of mind were physicalists. But some of them were illusionists, some of them were identity theorists, some of them were functionalists. You know, there was this divide between a priori and a posteriori physicalism. There were all these crisscrossing dividing lines within the physicalist camp. Okay, but there's still widespread physicalist agreement. You know, it's not a perfect analogy because we're just talking about philosophers, but still. You could still accurately say, that there's widespread agreement that physicalism is true among philosophers. So again, the target belief is God, something godlike. We're not trying to prove the triune God or something like that, or Thor, or Allah, or any specific God. It's just something godlike. We're really not trying to get more specific than that. You know, in the devil's advocate debate, I was just defending kind of a bare philosophical theism. You know, so if I were making a cumulative case for theism, or for some particular version of theism, it would probably start with a contingency argument, then I would make the kind of case that I made in the devil's advocate debate, and then if I was trying to argue for Christianity, I would have to make completely different arguments. You know, so if you're making a sort of progressive, cumulative case, there are going to be different stages of that case. First, you might be establishing just a necessary being, and a foundation to reality. And then you move on to what the characteristics of that foundation might be. And then you try to support something vaguely theistic. And you gradually move along into something, you know, specifically Christian. And if you wanted to get really specific, you'd start arguing for, you know, Catholicism over Protestantism or something. 
So there could be many, many stages to the case for whatever your worldview happens to be, but it's not going to come all at once. Hey, so I'm in the middle of editing this right now, and I thought it might be helpful to step in and kind of give a roadmap. So as I said a moment ago, widespread theistic agreement is often met with the counterpoint, oh, but there's religious diversity. And I think that would be a great point if I was trying to make an argument from widespread Christian agreement, but I'm not. I'm making an argument from widespread theistic agreement. So there could be widespread physicalist agreement, and you could counter that there are illusionists and identity theorists and functionalists who don't agree. Okay, but the point is that there's widespread physicalist agreement. Now I'm moving on to another criticism, which is often implicit. It's not always drawn out explicitly. Namely, that religious disagreement is special. It's not like other disagreements. So I try to draw out why I think it's unique and outline some potential responses. So the reason I wanted to interject with a roadmap is because I think I didn't make it sufficiently clear what I was doing. What I'm trying to do is make religious disagreement like any other kind of disagreement. So I think religious disagreement, prima facie, is special. There are things that make it distinctive. But I think that if you can succeed in making religious disagreement just like any other disagreement, over Platonism or something like that, then the evidence becomes less powerful. You know, whatever God's reasons are for allowing disagreement of any kind can explain why he permits religious diversity. I think if we can erode what makes religious disagreement distinctive and make it just like any other disagreement, then I think that that would go a long way towards undercutting or rebutting this kind of objection. So the three things that I key in on that I think make religious disagreement distinctive, God is trying to tell us the right answer. You know, it's not like the Platonic realm is trying to tell us that the Platonic realm exists, but God is trying to communicate with us. Secondly, the stakes are high. You know, it's as if we have a vast series of buttons in front of us, and if we press the wrong one, we end up being annihilated or suffering eternally, and God wasn't (laughs) very clear (laughs) about which button you're supposed to press. Okay, so the stakes are high. And then thirdly, a relationship with God is supposed to be good in and of itself. So if you're not in a relationship with God, you're missing out on something valuable. So whether or not you think that's what makes religious disagreement distinctive from other kinds of disagreement, or whether you think I succeed in undermining those three points, hopefully it's at least clear what the strategy is. So if I can undermine the second and third points, the stakes are not high, there will not be an unimaginable catastrophe that results from religious disagreement, and you will not be missing out on a relationship with God as a result of religious disagreement, I think that would undercut the first reason, you know, God is trying to communicate with us. You know, I think these three reasons are kind of bound up. He doesn't want there to be this level of diversity. Anyway, once you diminish religious disagreement to the same level as any other kind of disagreement, then the benefits of disagreement can come to the fore. What are the virtues of allowing disagreement? So maybe that would go a little way towards answering why there's religious diversity. Anyway, that's the plan. That's why I spend so much time talking about the afterlife and soteriology, and a little bit of time talking about hiddenness, though this is all very cursory, you know, it's more of an outline of a strategy for dealing with religious disagreement.
I brought up soteriology in the debate. Soteriology is just the branch of theology dealing with salvation and the afterlife. So I brought this up not only in the context of hiddenness and evil, but also in the context of religious diversity and disagreement. I mean, I think any complete discussion of religious disagreement is going to have to include some kind of soteriological discussion as well. So I did mention something like universalism, without getting too specific about which model of universalism. I was basically just saying no to eternal conscious torment and annihilationism. So there are a few points that I want to cover with regard to soteriology and universalism. The first has to do with the point that was just raised about the cumulative case and how in the context of this devil's advocate debate I wasn't really trying to get past the theistic stage, and yet now I'm talking about competing doctrines of salvation. When I was appealing to universalism, I was trying to draw it out from the more foundational stuff that I was talking about, you know, perfect being theism. I wasn't appealing to, you know, Christian scriptures or something. You could make a sort of common consent argument for the afterlife. It'd actually be a lot stronger than the common consent argument for God. But I'm saying working with nothing but the tools of perfect being theism, if you're trying to answer the question of, is there an afterlife? Seems like you would lean yes. And what is the general character of this afterlife? Seems like you would lean positive. I mean, prima facie, it seems like an eternal, non-torturous afterlife for all conscious beings makes for a better fit with perfect being theism than creating conscious beings for a short time and then annihilating them, or creating them only to be tortured for all of eternity. Something like eternal conscious torment is logically incompatible with perfect being theism. Something like annihilation doesn't really make for a comfortable fit. You know, killing something because you love it is a kind of a weird thing to do. You know, it became necessary to destroy the town to save it. <laughs> I'm saying if you're trying to figure out yes afterlife or no afterlife, which would be more valuable? I would say yes afterlife. <laughs> so if you're just talking about perfect being theism, you know, which one makes for a more comfortable immediate fit? Well, I mean, just intuitively, it seems like thumbs up afterlife is better than thumbs down to the afterlife. And uh, what is the general character of this afterlife? You know, positive or negative? Well, I think we can rule out, like, the more hellish ones. If you're trying to answer the question of, is there an afterlife? Seems like you would lean yes. And what is the general character of this afterlife? Seems like you would lean positive. Appealing to something like universalism. I don't think it's totally ad hoc, and I don't think I'm, you know, having to sort of skip ahead and appeal to some kind of Christian resource to get there. So I'm also thinking, you know, what's distinctive about religious disagreement? Why is religious disagreement supposed to be this thing that undermines uh, belief in God? Well, God is supposedly trying to tell us the right answer. You know, it's not like the right interpretation of quantum mechanics or something where it's not like nature is just trying to tell you what's going on. God is trying to tell you the right answer, and somehow it's not clear. God could have communicated in such a way that there was no ambiguity. It was perfectly determinate. There was no confusion at all. God could have done that. It's well within his power to do so. Okay, so that's one distinctive thing about religious disagreement. Another thing that's distinctive about religious disagreement is that the stakes are high. It's not like this is no different for, from any other disagreement. Like, oh, some people are Platonists, 
some people are non-Platonists. Like, no, (laughs) there are many, many religious believers who think that if you fail to assent to the right proposition or fail to love the right person, that you will be tortured for all of time. And then you add that to the fact that God is trying to tell us the right answer. He really doesn't want that to happen to you. And somehow he's just, he is trying and failing. This omnipotent being is, he doesn't, he really doesn't want you to go to hell, but he's trying and he just can't manage it. He cannot figure out a way. He literally is the creator of language itself, but he cannot figure out a way to communicate such that there's no confusion, no discord, no disagreement. So as I mentioned in the debate, I think that if you have a plausible soteriological scheme instead of a ludicrously implausible one, like the idea that you go to hell for all of eternity if you fail to say the not hell words during your lifetime, you know, if you fail to assent to the right proposition, well, eternal torture for you. Like, yeah, once you get over that sort of idea, which has literally no chance of being true, for more on that, you can see my eternal conscious torment video. Which, sorry, just to say, if you believe that idea, it's not because, it's not necessarily because you're stupid. (laughs) That sounded, that came out wrong. Um, I think that the way that people acquire beliefs like that is not through, like, a careful process of reasoning about the nature of theism and what it might entail, and what it might entail is false. But it's definitely logically incompatible with eternal conscious torment for people who fail to believe the right things about how the universe works. And just to be clear, when I say torment, I mean torment, like torture. I just, I have to clarify. So yeah, most people just kind of inherit that belief or just, you know, their their epistemic authorities and leaders in their community and, you know, trusted figures all kind of say the same thing and you just kind of accept it semi-uncritically or someone points to a passage in the Bible and you're like, well, I got to believe what the Bible says or I got to believe what the church says or whatever. People do not arrive at this belief through a process of reasoning. Now, if you did, I have much less charitable things to say about you, because I don't understand how this view survives critical scrutiny at all. But for most people, they don't critically scrutinize it. Most people who believe it don't critically scrutinize it. The people who do, and somehow still believe it. I'm sorry, I don't mean to sound so, like, so rude about it, but it's like, it's such a malicious belief. Like, it's... It's not, like, intellectually defensible, and it's also just kind of abhorrent, you know? So it's hard not to be so disparaging about it, because it's intellectually and morally indefensible. If you could just see what was happening there, if I could somehow show you what's going on in in the realm of eternal eternal torture overseen by the, the behooved one, if I could just show you what was going on there for, like, 10 seconds it would just immediately become clear how wrong it was. But, I mean, that aside, like, you don't have to be morally up in arms about it. You can just think about it logically, which is why I recommended that Eternal Conscious Torment video I made. It's just logically incompatible with theism. Purely in virtue of the meaning of certain words, you can't say something like, a perfectly loving, perfectly just being superintends the eternal torture of conscious creatures. That's literally incoherent. It has nothing to do with being emotional or or being compassionate or anything like that. Words mean things, and when you put them together in a certain way, it just turns into incoherent gibberish. 
So uh, what was I talking about? <laughs> um, oh yeah. So once you move towards a more plausible soteriological scheme, then I think that religious disagreement is not as big of a deal because again, what's distinctive about religious disagreement? Well, the stakes are high. That's why it's so unexpected, I think, on theism, because the stakes are so high and because God is trying to tell you the answer. Okay, well, God's not trying to tell you the answer to Platonism versus nominalism. So why would religious disagreement be any different from Platonism versus nominalism? Well, as best I can tell, it's for those two reasons. God is trying to tell us the right answer and because the stakes are high. And those two are kind of intertwined. You know, part of the reason why God is trying to tell us the right answer is because the stakes are high. But once you lower the stakes and it becomes more like Platonism versus nominalism, then whatever answer you have for why God doesn't reveal to everyone the right answer on that question, it can carry over to this question. I'll just mention really quickly as an aside that I think my thoughts on divine hiddenness might be working in the background here. You know, because one other reason God might want to reveal himself or make some of the disagreement and discord go away is not just because the stakes are high, but because a relationship with God is a good thing in and of itself. So why are there non-believers who are open to a relationship with God? Well, I think that you can be in a relationship with God without having explicit knowledge of the existence of the person of God or something like that. This is a view defended by Eleanor Stump, for instance, and I think C.S. Lewis. So explicit knowledge that God exists, I don't think is a precondition for a relationship with God. So I don't think anyone is going to be damned as a result of religious disagreement, and I don't think anyone is missing out on a relationship with God properly understood. So I think that religious disagreement is just not truly distinct from other kinds of disagreement. But this is what I mean when I say you can't talk about religious confusion or divine hiddenness without talking about soteriology. What are the stakes? What are the consequences of religious confusion? What is going to predictably follow? So I think once you succeed in eliminating the potential catastrophe that results from religious disagreement, then it just becomes like other disagreements. So if you have an answer to why God allows those sorts of disagreements, then you've got an answer for why God allows people to understand the transcendent and the divine through their own cultural windows and allows there to be some measure of disagreement. So I, when I talk about stakes, you know, my mind naturally goes to the afterlife, but there's also, you know, the matter of being in a relationship with God, which is supposed to be a good thing. Obviously, I agree that hiddenness is prima facie evidence against theism, because atheism entails this data point, theism does not. So you'd expect God to be more apparent, like his existence to be more obvious. Why wouldn't God just be a part of our lives, where if we wanted to verify his existence, it would be possible? That doesn't mean he has to be this constant feature of our daily experience, but just he's not hidden in the way that he's hidden now. But, you know, theists can, of course, explain hiddenness, I'm just a little unconvinced by some of the initial reactions that people have. Oh, well, if God was just a parent, then we would feel that we, like, you know, didn't really have moral freedom. It's like, okay, well, he doesn't have to be this feature of our daily conscious lives. It's not like God has to always be in the room looking at me. <laughs> like, yeah, that would be weird. Physically, right there. Just eyeballing me, no matter what I'm doing. Yeah, I agree. That would be annoying. 
But that's not what I'm talking about. Like, God's existence could still be apparent if you went looking for it. But that doesn't mean it has to be, like, you know, persistently a part of your visual field or something like that. (laughs) I mean, Christians already believe that God is omnipresent and can read their minds. You know, they have no mental privacy. And it's just, like, out of sight, out of mind. And I'm saying the same thing could be true, but you could verify God's existence if you really wanted to. Like, I could verify the existence of Australia if I really wanted to. If I became skeptical, I said, hey, Australia sounds like a fake continent. I'm an Australia truther. Well, Australia is not hidden. I can go verify it, even though it doesn't have to be a part of my daily life. You know, so God could be like, oh, I don't know, any other person. Really, the only promising response to divine hiddenness that I've ever heard involves the kind of lowering of the stakes that I've been talking about, such that unimaginable catastrophe does not follow as a direct result of God's decision to remain hidden. You know, a worse catastrophe than any nuclear bomb going off as a direct consequence of God choosing to remain hidden. So yeah, you can adopt a soteriological stance such that there is not a catastrophe worse than any nuclear bomb or world war that takes place as a direct consequence of divine hiddenness. You can just do that as a theist. Most of them don't for some reason, but you could. But then there's this additional problem, you know, like a relationship with God is supposed to be an intrinsically good thing, something that's just good in and of itself. You're missing out on this valuable thing. We can get into Schellenberg's argument, you know, the specifics of it, of like, God is perfectly loving. He should be open to a relationship with those who want a relationship with him, or at least those who are not opposed to having a relationship with him. People who have no sort of emotional resistance to God. They just think he doesn't exist. Okay, well, they're missing out on this good thing. And, you know, as I said, we've put in brackets the, uh, the terrible things that follow from not only the non-belief of atheists and agnostics, but of people who got the wrong religion. You know, I mean, I think they should be included as well. If you are this kind of, you have to have the right religion or you go to hell type of believer, which again describes most Christians, I would think, you have to explicitly be a Christian or you go to hell. All right, well, in that case, then the problem extends to Hindus and Muslims and polytheists and Jews and so forth. So, and you know, this directly bears on the whole religious diversity point as well. So it seems like God should be open to a relationship with non-resistant non-believers, which of course includes atheists and agnostics, but also people who think they are in relationship with God, but they're mistaken. They're worshiping, you know, the monkey god Hanuman, or Allah, or whatever. You know, the point is just, they're not actually in a relationship with God. Even people who are totally open to it, and some people who think they are in a relationship with God. Well, the joke's on them. So this is where we get to my spicy take that I mentioned earlier. You can be in relationship with God without knowing it explicitly. And I sort of attributed this view to C.S. Lewis and Eleanor Stump. Explicit knowledge that God exists, or whatever English word the God of the universe apparently prefers to be called by, may not be a precondition for a relationship with God. Knowing various facts about a person isn't the same thing as having a relationship with that person. So Eleanor Stump gives this example with a neighbor who only knew her as their neighbor and as, you know, so-and-so's mom. And then they went to a philosophy lecture 
and who's on stage but their neighbor, Eleanor Stump. And then they came up afterwards and they're like, I had no idea that you were, <laughs> this was your job or whatever. So if you asked the neighbor, do you know any philosophy professors? They would say no. But they did. They just didn't realize it. And, you know, if it's possible to think you're in a relationship with God but be mistaken, you know, like the sheep and the goats, then I don't see why the converse couldn't also be true. You could think you're not in a relationship with God but be mistaken. So how is that possible? Well, the good in God are supposed to be convertible. You know, God is love. If you take that at face value, and some of the other proclamations about God and his relationship to the good, then those who pursue the good are pursuing God, according to, for instance, the traditional Christian view. An explicit belief in God is not necessary to be in genuine pursuit of the good, or truth, or beauty, or the highest ideals of love. So if you're living in service to the highest ideals of love, if that's your highest value, if your highest value is is the good and truth and beauty and love, then if God is like identified with those, then if you're pursuing those values, if you're cultivating those virtues, then you are in a relationship with God, even though you don't have an explicit belief in God. You'd sort of be like Eleanor Stump's neighbor. So you might think this is more hippie nonsense, but I mean, you can find traces of this in the Bible, and further, there might be virtues that come about as a result of some people not having an explicit belief in God. I think that even from a theistic perspective, you can imagine why God might create atheists. And, I mean, this probably doesn't even need to be said at this point, but obviously, whatever value there is to some amount of atheism in the world, or a good amount of religious diversity in the world, is completely swamped by eternal conscious torment or annihilation. If those things are on the table, I really don't know what you could even say that could possibly justify hiddenness and diversity. You know, because I think there are values to both of those things. I think there are virtues to disagreement, and I think there are virtues to atheism. But if you build in that, well, people who get the wrong answer, you know, it happens to them. Once you go down that road, the pros are completely swamped by the cons. And because I just know that someone is going to accuse me of assuming consequentialism, no, I'm not. You do not have to be a consequentialist to notice that some things are more valuable than others. Some things are more important than other things. That does not assume consequentialism. My particular soteriological stance, it kind of touches on all these other areas. You know, it, would, it relates to how I would try to answer religious disagreement and hiddenness and arguments from evil in some cases. And also, you know, just wanting to have an internally coherent version of theism. So I think there are good reasons to be a universalist, many of which we haven't even begun to talk about. You know, when I'm putting on my theist hat, I do lean towards universalism um, because it's my backup insurance plan. No, because it's more rational. I mean, I think it does just kind of follow from perfect being theism. You know, it makes more sense to me. And also, I can't deny that it's a little fun to to push Christians' buttons like this because nothing pisses them off faster than suggesting that God might actually save everyone in the end. It's really upsetting to them. So yeah, I think it is more plausible um, and that something like on the other end of the spectrum is like literally impossible. <laughs> it's, um, but yeah, universalism, you know, it's, it's fun. 
it's fun to push people's buttons. And I happen to think that if theism is true, it is pro- something like that is probably true anyway. There's a Bob and David sketch about this, Bob Odenkirk and David Cross. It's not their, it's not Mr. Show, but they had another show, a later sketch show, I think. This is where it's from. But yeah, they made like a, a sketch about how upset <laughs> Christians would be if, if universalism turned out to be true. what he said or ought to be everyone knows there's a hell without a hell heaven wouldn't be as nice shame on him so anyway once you i mean i don't think this is just a totally ad hoc hypothesis where i'm just like slapping something down on the table that's completely like okay perfect being theism plus this other thing that doesn't at all follow from it i think it just kind of flows from the model it's not something that is this totally ad hoc thing meant to like you know cover my ass or something So why did I bring all that up? Well, because once you lower the stakes, then I think that it's not as unexpected on theism that there would be religious disagreement. Part of what makes religious disagreement distinctive, you know, part of what distinguishes it from other sorts of intellectual disagreements is that, well, you're fucked if you get the wrong answer. Okay, well, what if there's not going to be a catastrophe if you fail to get the right answer? Well, then religious disagreement becomes like any other disagreement. Because the thing that's really troubling about religious discord and biblical confusion, I mean, you can explain a certain amount of disagreement. The thing that you can't really explain is soteriological discord, provided you're not some kind of universalist. Like, the stakes could not be higher. God is trying to tell us the right answer. He's trying to communicate the stakes and the consequences, and it's it's unclear. Okay, that's just, it's almost as if we have a vast series of buttons in front of us, and if you press the wrong one, you end up tortured for trillions upon trillions of years, and if you press the other one, you don't, and then God was not really clear about which button you're supposed to push. Okay, that's crazy. That's ridiculous. So once you lower the stakes and you have a soteriological scheme where that's just not really on the table, there's no button you can press that results in you being tormented for all of eternity, then, yeah, I think that what makes religious disagreement distinctive kind of fades away. Furthermore, there are different kinds of disagreement. Like, there are things that are mere differences, you know, about, like, how we want to live. Do we want to worship on Saturday or on Sunday? Or are they, like, core disagreements? And by core disagreement, I mean something that actually matters. Like, something where, if you get the wrong answer, catastrophe will follow. But yeah, once you eliminate that whole catastrophic option, then uh, things look more like mere differences and less like core disagreements. Yeah, so it's not as surprising, I think, that different religious believers would see God through their own cultural windows, that there would be unique cultural expressions of uh, their godlike beliefs. That becomes less surprising once you um, enter the uh, liberal hippie realm that I'm kind of outlining here. (laughs) But look, I mean, you could spend your whole life reading about different religions and trying to resolve every disagreement, and you could not. You could not do it. There would be religions you haven't heard of. There would be disagreements that could not be settled. So if you believe that God is perfectly loving and just, then presumably he has reasons to permit these disagreements while maintaining his status as perfectly loving and just. So what might those reasons be? 
Again, why does God allow disagreements about anything? Well, because most of those disagreements are not going to result in unimaginable catastrophe. So that clears the way. Again, once you get these less plausible soteriological models just off the table, then you can talk about the value of disagreement. So, for instance, disagreement among smart people breeds humility. When I find out there are people who I respect, who I think are intelligent, who think different things than I do, it makes me feel more humble about my beliefs. I think it enriches life in general, and it generates excitement. This is something that Christopher Hitchens talked about, where he said he, he was extremely drunk in the back of a car. I, I can't, I, it was, it's been a really long time since I've seen this video, but he said something like he, d- he wouldn't want everyone to deconvert because it would take away this fun intellectual sparring match. So it, it, it generates excitement, it enriches life, it breeds humility, it leads to a process of growth. It leads to a process of arriving at truth rather than just being programmed to already know the right answer. Is that like what the people who are raising religious disagreement, like is that what they expect if theism is true, that God would just create a bunch of clones with identical beliefs where we all are just pre-programmed to believe the right answer? I see no reason to think that would be the case. I think that there's value to disagreement. And of course, all of that that I just mentioned is trivial, is trivial in comparison to eternal hell or annihilation. But once we get over these views, universalism opens the way to explain disagreement. So without universalism, religious disagreement, particularly soteriological disagreement, is inexcusable and, I would think, a devastating objection. So again, this is something I said right at the beginning, when you change your model, when you change your worldview, evidence does not have the same impact. So you can't just say, oh, it doesn't matter if you're a universalist or you believe in eternal conscious torment. Religious disagreement packs the same evidential punch against both of them. Sorry, but that doesn't make any sense. Religious disagreement, in particular soteriological... Well, look, the fact that there is soteriological disagreement is evidence for naturalism. For sure. (laughs) Because there are way more people who are not universalists, right? So, but I haven't really been talking about that. I'm just talking about religious disagreement. Because people typically don't specify soteriological disagreement. That's something that, as far as I can tell, is kind of unique to me, where I think that that specific argument is like a devastating objection that uh, really supports naturalism. The fact that people don't agree on how to get salvation or, you know, the nature of salvation, like, that I think is a big problem. And the only way I can make sense of that when I put my theist hat on is that, um, you know, something like universalism is true. But regardless, it is still evidence. Soteriological disagreement is evidence favoring naturalism. But if we're just zooming out and talking about religious disagreement more generally, those sorts of differences, I think, there's value to disagreement. And once you lower the stakes, then those values, those virtues of disagreement, actually become worth something to the point that I think they totally could justify and explain religious disagreement. So just to loop all the way back around to the whole widespread theistic belief phenomenon to begin with, belief in God was produced by generally truth-tracking human faculties far more often than it wasn't, and its likelihood is raised as a matter of probability since most of the beliefs that are held by most people are true. I think that still holds up, and I don't think it's really undermined by uh, religious disagreement, the consensus of experts, the appeal to popularity fallacy earlier on. 
you know, I'm still, I'm just walking away thinking that this is still a good argument. But maybe I'm missing something. Again, I would love to be set straight on this. But for the time being, I'm still thinking that widespread theistic belief is evidence favoring theism. Again, maybe you think it's really weak evidence. But I, I look, I'm, I'm still thinking that it's evidence favoring theism. So with that, I think I will leave it there. Thank you for listening. I've been Emerson Green, and I'll talk to you next time. Thank you.